So, a um, little behind the scenes. Hey, I'm Frank, by the way, if you're a guest with us, one of the pastors. You're stuck with me for the next about 25, 30 minutes. Who are we kidding? 45 minutes, right? Amen? Come on. All right, anyway. Um, a <laughs> little behind the scenes for you. When it comes to Sunday morning, one of the things that I um, have made a habit of, and I, I don't remember when it started, it just did, and it's become my prayer um, every Sunday morning before I preach, I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Why don't you take your Bible and go there? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As I, as I look forward, literally, each Sunday to the preaching event, to the opportunity to stand before you, I, um, this is my prayer. And I think it's very appropriate for me to pray this before you this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, when I came to you, my brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I didn't come with brilliance of speech. I didn't come with wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech, my preaching, were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but were with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Even so, Lord, make that happen. I can get up here, my fear this morning is I can get up here and I can answer the question that is asked for the week and I can go off of logic. Uh, I, I could go off of um, tearing down an argument, thus leaving my argument higher standing. Um, a lot of different ways we can go at this and, and there's a few reasons why I'm not. One of which is the breadth of information to answer the question this morning is far too broad for me to even touch. So I need to be very careful with that. The other is, I have a fear in my heart that if I answer this question for you, and it's logical, and there's a lot of logical arguments to answer this question, that you'll leave this place and the first time you have an opportunity to have a conversation with someone who believes these things, you employ that logic and friends, I'm gonna tell you the logic of man is empty of the Holy Spirit's power. And so that, that, that um, I have a, I was gonna say a healthy fear. I have a fear, uh, God will judge the motive if it's healthy or not. I have that fear in my heart, so please hear me. Um, we're gonna walk through this <laughs> We're going to run through some of it, and I want to land simply in the place where Paul landed with the Corinthians. I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's where we're going to land eventually. In the meantime, you have to bear with me as I seek to answer this question. How do we answer the most common challenges from other religions or cults? How do we respond? When a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Easy questions. Yet again, 
Uh, for those of you visiting with us, I say this every week, this is not our normal way of preaching, teaching. What we normally do is we go through a book of the Bible and just kind of walk through that, but for the last, uh, now this is week nine, uh, we have been answering the questions as asked and voted upon by the membership of Uniontown Bible Church. Um, praise God, I've got this week and next week, and then about a four-week nap. Um, no, we got the next two weeks, I'm really, and then, and then, well, we'll talk about that later. I don't want, in fact, here's, here's irony, right? My first point, don't chase squirrels. <laughs> so in reality, as we seek to answer this question, every cult, every religion has a lot of really insignificant points that really don't matter. However, in their conversations, they tend to make those the significant moments. They tend to elevate those above everything else. And so I want to encourage you in, in answering this question, how do you answer this? How do you respond? I want to encourage you to, to be careful not to chase those, those smaller things, but try to work to the process of evaluating if, if this is going to be the difference of a person being at peace with God through Jesus Christ or them dying in their lost state and spending eternity in hell. And, and not all the little tiny nuances that go on the, the other side, but please understand, they're, they're, the nuances really are bigger than just little tiny nuances too. There's a lot of abhorrent, abhorrent beliefs. There's a lot of abhorrent beliefs. There's a lot of just straight up heresy, um, frustration that can set in when you read some of these things about somebody that we love so very much. So... The reason, it was funny, I was like, maybe I'm just going to focus on truth and talk through truth, but I actually want to run through um, at least two, maybe three, of the different religions and cults that are common around us today in our, in our community. For this reason, um, I want you to know how very different they are than Christianity. One of the greatest problems in our culture today is that everybody's saying, well, we can all just get there our own way, right? We're all saying the same things. Just with different words, that means you're not saying the same things. And so I, I think when you hear some of these things, it will be somewhat stark and surprising to you. So uh, I'm going to start. Um, really, this is, um, I, I, this is my plan of attack, just to lay it out for you. If you're an outline person, I apologize, because being able to follow this one, you're going to need like shorthand skills that are ridiculous, okay? Um, the, the idea is, how do we answer the most common challenges? How do we respond when a Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, a person knocks on your door? I'm going to kind of go at it this way. I want you to understand w what some of their teachings are. I want you to understand what the biblical teaching is. And then at the end of the first two, I'm just going to say, this is how I think you should respond if one of these shows up on your doorstep. Uh, this is my counsel to you. Okay? And then, then I'll answer that last question, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? That'll be the, the grand finale. So that's what we're pointing at. So first, I want to talk about uh, the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, this, this is a, a group that started in 1830 under the leadership of a man named Joseph Smith. He was 24 years old. Uh, he created this belief that, uh, that the church had apostatized in 100 AD. And so he was visited by an angel named Moroni. Moroni gave him special instructions Part of those special instructions were for Joseph Smith to go to a hill that was just outside of his hometown of Palmyra, New York, and dig up these golden plates that had been buried there in the year 400. 
So Joseph Smith followed the advice and counsel of Moroni. He went and he dug up these plates. He found these golden plates. They were written in something that he claimed to be reformed Egyptian. Um, And then he claimed that God had given him the ability to translate those plates using special glasses called the Urim and Thummim. When I hear Urim and Thummim, I'm sorry. I don't want to joke about this too much. I want to be careful. But when I hear Urim and Thummim, I always think of those glasses that have one green and one red eye. And if he looks at it just right, he's like, I can read Reformed Egyptian now. Um, Interestingly, when you read through the Reformed Egyptian translation, which later became the Book of Mormon, what you find is that the Book of Mormon sounds an awful lot like the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, In fact, there are many verses that are pretty much straight up uh, copied into the Book of Mormon. Uh, That Book of Mormon uh, uh, is supposed to be the account of the ancient inhabitants of North America from 600 B.C., to 400 AD. That's the reason in many of the historical Mormon documents and artwork that you'll find, you will often find Native Americans in that artwork. And that's because that's the teaching of the church. So now, what are some of the doctrines? That's kind of how this thing started. What are some of the doctrines? Their their authority. The authority of the Mormons comes down to this. The Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine and Covenants. Those are their four areas of, a, of authority. What do they believe about God? Okay, so up to this point, we're like, all right, it's a little strange, that's okay. What do they believe about God? They believe that God used to be human. And he progressed to this place where he got elevated to be God over this universe. And he's just one of many, many gods, but he is, he is this God of this universe. Now, John 4 tells us that God's not a man. In addition to that, Psalm 90 tells us that before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and to the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Malachi 3.6 tells us, I, the Lord, have not changed. So their teaching on the fact that God was once human has progressed to become God is anti-biblical. Their teaching on man follows the same suit. Man has the ability to progress and to become God just like Jehovah did. So you can live that life as best you can in such a way that as you continue to journey and make your life about obedience and doing good things to other people, then what can happen is you can develop and progress to the place where you're just like God. Here's a warning. That was what led to the fall in Genesis chapter three. You could be just like God. The teaching's not biblical. They're teaching on Jesus. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ was the firstborn spirit child of a spirit father and a spirit mother. Jesus was born as a spirit child. He then progressed to deity in the spirit world, and then he was later physically conceived in Mary's womb. But John 1.1 tells us that he has always been. There was no progression. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Salvation. Salvation in the Mormon church is works-based. It's based on human effort, not on faith. They believe there are three levels of the kingdom of heaven. They believe that virtually all people will reach immortality in one of those levels of heaven. They believe that you get to immortality by believing in Jesus, temple rituals, and other obedience. And as you follow the other obedience of their system, then you, it's like all you gamers in here are going to love this, you level up. You go from level one 
to level two if you do all the right things. One of their key temple rituals is baptism. In fact, they have created a system where a Mormon can be baptized for someone who has already died and maybe only made it to the first level of heaven. But if I'm baptized on their behalf, then I can elevate them to the next level. So, so that's some of, the, some of the basic teachings of Mormonism. And I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I tried to give a little bit of the biblical refute, not get lost in all of that, and tried to present fairly. These are all from Mormon documents. I am not, this is documented well. So how do you respond if a Mormon comes to your front door and wants to engage you in conversation? So I'm going to shoot straight. Dealing with someone who follows the Mormon church's authority, it is difficult. It's difficult to do that because they, they don't believe that the Bible is the sole source of authority. So, so when they have a different authority, it, it makes it tough to have any level of conversation with them. So instead, this is, would be my counsel to someone who comes, so somebody who comes to my door, this would be what I would do if they are from the, the Mormon church. I would simply say to them, listen, I don't think uh, that the things that you teach from the Mormon church are actually taught in Scripture. And I think that, that believing some of those things that you teach will lead to dangerous outcomes according to the Scripture. And that's where I need to land. And then you just leave it at that. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses was started in 1870 by an 18-year-old named Charles Taze Russell. Uh, He basically started a Bible study class, and then members of that class made him their pastor. So then he traveled, he wrote, he preached, and and he formed something called the Watchtower Society. The Watchtower Society is the key organization that oversees the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, It's the governing body for that, that whole group. They do have their own translation of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation. Uh, let me talk about that. That's their authority. They, they prefer this translation of Scripture that they've used. So they've translated many verses in the New World Translation to be friendly to their own theological interpretations, which we'll talk about in just a second. And they'll claim that the New World Translation is a much more accurate translation of the Scriptures than any of the other modern um, English translations. Uh, they'll claim that uh, the consensus of scholarship has acknowledged the same, that the New World Translation is the greatest translation out there. However, to my knowledge, and this was after, I don't know, I don't want to exaggerate, I did at least 30 minutes of Google searching, and with 30 minutes of Google, you can do anything. 30 minutes of Google searching, I have not yet found a single credible biblical scholar who is not in the Watchtower Society who has ever made a claim about the New World Translation being such an effective translation. Not a single one. And if you were to press many Jehovah Witnesses about that, they would find it very difficult to mention any names saying the same thing. What do the Jehovah Witnesses believe about God? Jehovah Witnesses insist you should call God by his name, Jehovah, rather than what they would say is his title, God. Um, Here's the hard part. You read through scripture, he's got a lot of names. God, Almighty, Lord, Lord of hosts. I mean, I could go on for a while. I've preached a 16-week series on the names of God before. There's a lot, of, a lot of names in there, so why did they pick just this one? So let me, you really want to blow their minds. 
This is, this is the right response. The word Jehovah did not show up in written form in Scripture until the 16th century. Why? Well, the scribes were so very careful and concerned that they would speak the name of God and cause anybody else to speak his name because his name, and rightly so, they held it in such high esteem and in such a holy name that no one should ever utter the name of God without fear of God's judgment on their life because he is so holy, his name shouldn't even be in our mouth. We do not want to say his name in vain in any way, shape, or form. So what they did, the scribes, instead of writing out his name, they just wrote out the um, the, the consonants of his name, Y-H-W-H. And that's what was written up until the 16th century. In the 16th century, <coughs> excuse me, people got nervous that people, others may figure out that you said that Yahweh. And if you say Yahweh, well then you're in danger because you just uttered the very name of God. And so what they did instead was they took the vowels from another name, Adonai, and they translated the vowels into the Y-H-W-H, so now instead of it saying Yahweh, it's Yahoah, which is where they get the word Jehovah from. They believe that their second coming of Jesus Christ has already happened. It happened as a spiritual event in 1914. However, the encouragement for us is when you read through the book of Revelation, you don't even have to make it through chapter one. And you find out that the second coming of Christ will be physical and visible because every eye will see him. Their view on eternity is this. There's only 144,000 anointed people who will live in heaven and rule with Jesus Christ. The rest, the, they're called the other sheep, will live here on a refurbished earth they don't believe that there is actually a place called hell. They think when the Bible speaks of hell, it's just speaking about the grave. The wicked, those who wouldn't end up in heaven ruling with Jesus or on the refurbished earth, those wicked upon death would be annihilated. But as we read scripture, we find that hell is a real place of eternal conscious torment. Salvation. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that salvation requires faith in Jesus Christ, association with God's organization, which is obviously the Watchtower Society, and obedience to the rules of the Watchtower Society. They believe that salvation is by faith after necessary works have been done. One scholar used this illustration to try to explain it. It's like filling out the form for a scholarship that will get you a free education. While the scholarship is free and you don't pay anything for the scholarship and the results are wonderful, you have to fill out the form to make yourself qualified to receive the scholarship. That's the view of salvation for the Jehovah Witness. There's a, a certain amount of acts and good works you must do before you're allowed to believe in Jesus Christ by faith. Praise God that's not the case. Praise God for the, the truth of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that it's through faith by grace through faith. It's alone through grace. There is nothing else. It's not based on any performance at all. Probably the greatest problem with the Jehovah Witness doctrine is their view on Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus was created by Jehovah, that he was created as Michael, the archangel, before the physical world existed, and that he progressed into the place where he is now 
a God. He's still a mighty God, but he's less than Jehovah. Obviously, we wouldn't believe that. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Let me, let me share this with you. When you approach a Jehovah Witness with John 1.1 and say, listen, you say that he was created, but my Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Our New World Translation translates that differently, which is fine, but their New World Translation translates verses two and three the exact same. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. I believe that John was writing those verses in particular to combat the argument that Jesus had been created. In fact, as you read through the book of John, it's, it's surprising how many times the author makes it a point to point out Jesus existed before Abraham was. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that when Jesus was born on earth, he was a human He was not God in human flesh. That denies the biblical teaching that is found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Let me read that for you. Yep. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. I'll start in verse 8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's deity dwells bodily in Christ. The word for fullness carries the idea of the sum total, all of it, exactly what you would expect it to mean. There isn't an ounce missing, it's the fullness. The idea of deity refers to the nature, the being, and the character, the attributes of God. And so therefore it says the incarnate Jesus, Jesus in flesh, was the sum total of the nature, being, character, and attributes of God in bodily form. And so when we read about Jesus being our Emmanuel, God with us, it truly means that God himself was with us. How do you respond when you're at home trying to watch television and the Jehovah Witness comes knocking on your door? I will tell you how we all normally respond. Mute the television and duck. Right? Let's be honest. That's what most of us do. You look at the kids and like, nobody say a word. And they're going to come knocking. If it was me, here's my response to Jehovah Witness. I know your theology well enough to know that you believe Jesus is a created being. You don't believe that Jesus is God. You think he's an angel. I believe Jesus is co-eternal with God. I believe he is one with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. I believe he is the creative agent of everything we see and the sustainer of all of creation. And I believe your theology is leading people away from the only Savior, Jesus Christ. I would love in this moment that you are standing on my porch to pray for you. Would you let me do that? And I will tell you, between the two, uh, please don't read judgmentalism into this, between the two, if you were to ask a Mormon if they would allow you to pray for them, and if you were to ask a Jehovah's Witness who was coming to your door to evangelize you to pray for them, 
the Mormon would be much quicker to say yes. The Jehovah Witness usually gets very combative at that moment. Um, we've had, since living here, a Jehovah Witness tell us um, <laughs> that this was their time while they were standing on my front porch. We politely told them their time was over. <laughs> I think particularly for those two groups, folks, uh, the, but we need to understand and, and, I, and I'm, I'll shoot straight. Some of the belief systems that they have are just wacky. You know, I, I didn't, I almost said something funny. I didn't talk about the Mormon's holy underwear, which is a real thing. Not like holy, sorry. <laughs> I didn't talk about that. But many of their beliefs are just so unusual. And they're going to hell without Christ. So while it's easy to poke fun, it's more important that we do what God's called us to do. To pray for their souls. And to point them to truth. So it leads me to the last question of the morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that question is this. Do we... Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? There's a lot of discussion about that out there, um, particularly because of this. Here's where it gets confusing. Uh, the Arabic language, the word for God is Allah. And so many Christians in Arabic-speaking nations have historically referred to the God of the Bible that you and I worship as Allah. However, those Christians would be quick to point out that's not the same God as the Muslim God. In fact, every Muslim you talk to would tell you, you do not worship the same God they do. But for some reason, as Christians, We've tried to soften it a little bit, like maybe we just worship the same God. We don't. I could pray and be done, but it's me, so I can't do that. What you need to understand is that your, and, and there's a lot of ways to go. The easiest one to go is this. Your belief, your acceptance of, your teaching about who Jesus is will tell you if we worship the same God or not. And we were told that in John 5, Jesus says, all the people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, Muslims would, 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 would agree with us on a few things about Jesus. They would say Jesus was, in fact, virgin born. They would say that Jesus did, in fact, have disciples, that he did, in fact, ascend into heaven, and he will, in fact, return at some point as a sign of the end times. But then they would say, no, Jesus was not crucified, it was a hoax. God changed the way everything looked to people so they would believe that they were able to, to, to crucify Jesus, but God would never have allowed anyone to crucify one of his prophets. The Muslim faith would teach, if you believe that Jesus is God, your eternal abode is hell. 
In any discussions with Muslims, what you would find is they, their, their questions are consistent. So what they would say is, oh, so you believe in Jesus. So tell me where it says that Jesus is God. Point to scripture. Go ahead. Use your own Bible and tell me where it says Jesus is God, which is a wonderful gift to us, folks. Because what you find is, is a number of things that would lead us to that place where we could say, Jesus is God. Let me start in Matthew 14, When those who were in the boat after he silenced the wind and waves worshipped him and they said to him, truly, you're the son of God. Matthew 28, 9, when, when Jesus approached the women after the resurrection, he said to them, greetings. They came up, they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Jesus accepted the worship as if he was God. Jesus used names about himself that were divinely given to God alone. John 8, 58, Jesus said to the crowd around them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Others called him God. In Matthew 16, Peter answers him when he's asked, Who do you say that I am? He says, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Matthew 8, 29, the demons suddenly shout and they say to him, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Matthew 3, God the Father himself speaks from heaven upon Jesus being baptized. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Thomas in John 20, 28, responds to seeing the the nail scars in his hands and the, 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 the gash in his side. He says, my Lord, my God. Okay, so, but that's fine, but Jesus never made the claim that he was God. Really? John 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. I think he did make the claim. John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one, Jesus said, and at that the Jews picked up rocks to stone him, and Jesus said, I've shown you so many good works from the Father, for which of those good works are you stoning me? And they said, we're not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Do we worship the same God? No. The way you view Jesus will determine that. Jesus is God. And we're thankful for that, aren't we? So, so honestly, I, how do you answer all the questions that a Mormon never brings up? Yeah, that's not happening. How do you refute Jehovah's Witnesses 100% of the time? Wrong guy. What, what, do, we, what, what do we do? Here, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Take hold on the simplicity of the teaching of Scripture. Before time began, the triune, eternal, infinite, perfect God existed. He he, he was existing in perfect majesty, perfect glory, perfect holiness. He had no need of us. He wasn't lonely. And yet he still created us in his image. Why? Because he wanted to. There are few people sitting in this room that I know of, and probably more than I don't know of, that have asked yourself that very question in the last year. So why do I exist? You know why you exist? Because God wanted you to. It's a pretty good reason. God created us to enjoy him, to worship him, to love him, to be in relationship with him, and when God saw everything he created, he looked and behold, it was very good. 
Please understand, the story of the Bible doesn't start with man, it starts with God. And the problem is, after he created man, man's involvement makes it take a turn. Because everything that God had created, being perfectly good and very good, took a sudden turn because man rebelled against God. And so now everything that God had created is tainted with sin. And you see that every day as we deal with pain, disease, sickness, death, And as a result of that fall, as a result of that sin, every single one of us sitting in this room, we are both by nature and by choice sinners. Because of that, we're separated from God. Because God's holy. And we're not. And that separation from God is the reason you and I continue to breathe at this moment. For if we were to stand before his presence in our sinfulness, God's holiness would destroy us on the spot. We're separated, there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. And what you find is these religions, those are man's attempt at bridging that separation. But every single one of them falls short because God already told us how that gap would be bridged. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, humbled himself, left heaven for us, came and took on this imperfect flesh so that he could rescue us. Jesus lived a perfect life that we couldn't live so that he would be an acceptable sacrifice for us. And that sinless, spotless, perfect Savior became sin for us and willingly went to die on the cross, bearing in his body the full wrath of God, bearing in his body what you and I should be experiencing. He was buried And three days later, God displayed the effectiveness of his death by raising him in victory over sin, death, Satan, and the grave. And if you and I would simply call on his name, if we would just confess with our mouths what our lives demonstrate every day, that we are sinners and that Jesus is the son of God who came to take my penalty and that through him and him alone, the separation of my sin can be healed. If we would do that, then what we get is his righteousness. What we get is complete acceptance from God. What we get is the peace that every single one of us so desperately wants. And we can look forward to the day when we cross the earthly finish line and you can come into the presence of God and you can have your Savior see you coming and look at his Father and say, that one. That one's mine. And none of it was earned. It's all because of mercy, not getting what I deserve because Jesus took it for me. And it's all grace, getting what I don't deserve because Jesus continues to provide it for me. When I came to you, my brothers and sisters, announcing to you the mystery of God, I didn't come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech, my preaching, 
They're not with persuasive words of wisdom. With a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. May that be your prayer every day you walk in and interact with people who are chasing something other than Jesus. Father, I pray that you would protect your people from the attacks of Satan. They're many, they're consistent, and they're effective. I think that some of the attack really is an attempt by Satan himself to get us to embrace theology and doctrine and beliefs that really aren't of you. So God, would you, would you protect your people? Would you, like Paul, give us that spirit of humility knowing that there's no magic words we can say? We just wanna to point to Christ to help us to do that effectively. And Father, I ask that you would give us the opportunity uh, to, to celebrate what it is that you've done with those around us, people who know you and people who don't. And would you give somebody in this room the blessed opportunity this week of being able to open their mouth and point to Jesus? Because it's all about him. Lord, thank you for Christ. In his name I pray, amen.